So while I was preparing uh, this sermon, uh, I asked a few people in my circle uh, what they thought about the sermon topic and the passage. Um, and for some reason, um, I would always uh, get the same response. Uh, it would look and sound like something like this. Jonathan, you know you're 23 years old, right? Yes. Uh, you know you have under three months of work experience. Yes. Uh, you know, this is your first sermon, and you're preaching on the topic of giving, aren't you? Um, yes. And sadly, I didn't realize early enough that this is somewhat of a delicate topic to preach on. Um, but um, at least now I know that I'm to enjoy this experience as much as possible, because I might not be invited to preach anytime soon. <laughs> so um, let's get started, shall we? Um, before we dive into the text and pray... Um, I wanted to give my thanks uh, to Pastor Brent uh, for trusting me with this opportunity, uh, trusting me with the handling of God's word. Um, Pastor Brent is someone who I see as a role model on the pulpit and off the pulpit. He is a great man of God. And um, yeah, and it, it does stress me out that he's listening to this sermon. Um, I think my mic is shut. Can you guys hear me? Yeah? Okay. Um, and also I wanted to thank all the prayer warriors uh, that I can see here in this church. Those prayer warriors won't be here on the stage. Rarely will they be here. But I know some have prayed for me my whole life, from the nursery up to here. So um, I thank you, and I rejoice in knowing that people have prayed for me. All right? So let us pray for my heart on this pulpit and for your hearts to receive the word of God. Amen. Dearly Father, we bow before you in your presence, your holy presence, O oh God. God, we thank you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself in your word and in your creation. That, Lord, we can open your word publicly here, study it, pray over it, receive it, and have this word transform our lives from the inside out. God, I thank you that you promised in Isaiah 55 that when you send out your word, it will not return to you empty. I pray, Lord, that your word, not my words, would take effect into the hearts of the people. Lord, your word at times is like sweet honey, but at times it's like bitter herbs. Lord, would your will and purpose uh, take place this morning according to your good pleasure. God, and lastly, I pray First, first Peter for, Lord, over myself, whoever would speak, let it be as one who speaks oracles of God by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God would be glorified through Jesus. For yours is the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So here's a game plan this morning. I've divided our nine verses um, in 2 Corinthians 8 into three sections with the subheadings that you can see right here. Uh, the first one being overflowing generosity in Macedonia, which covers verses 1 to 5. And section 2, genuine love-generated generosity, verses 6 to 8. And the last one being gospel-compelled generosity, covering verse 9. I have attached a question that I came up with for every section so that we could center our minds on what Paul is trying to communicate under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The first question is, abundantly joyful, yet afflicted and extremely poor. How on earth is that possible? Second question, is your love for God genuine? 
How do you know? The third one, how is Jesus surpassingly generous towards us? All right. So before we um, actually read, uh, some context is um, appropriate given that this is not a preaching series. We're zooming in into a geographical location and a point in time in history. Um, so I'll give you some context for Second Corinthians. Um, Firstly, um, and this comes from the English Standard Version uh, Study Bible, um, 2 Corinthians was actually not the second letter uh, addressed to the Corinthians, but actually it's the fourth of four letters. What we have in the Bible is 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter, and um, 2 Corinthians the fourth letter. We have references to those third and first letters in Scripture. Um, It was written in about 55 or 56 AD from Macedonia. And the two main themes of 2 Corinthians is this. First of all, Paul is emphatically joyful to see the repentance of the Corinthians. After he had sent a severe and tearful letter, uh, this is the third letter, um, where he was pretty harsh with the way they had rebelled and sinned against God, and they had repented, so he was joyful. Uh, we have reference to this in Second Corinthians 2, verses 4. And the second one, which occupies most of Second Corinthians, is how Paul addresses uh, the opponents uh, that were disturbing the church in Corinth. Um, so, among many things, one was his motive in collecting money for believers in Judea. They were questioning that, as though he was greedy and wanted to keep money for himself. But the most important one was that they claimed that Paul suffered too much to be a spirit-filled apostle. And to this he responds in a powerful, countercultural way with confidence and boldness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of God may rest on me. When I am weak, I am strong. 2 Corinthians 12. Parts of verse 9 and 10. So um, right here, we have the three churches in Macedonia. So this is uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. And right here, the church of Corinth, which is being addressed. So let's start by reading. Uh, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do so, uh, let's open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, going forward. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this... Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't follow a few guys. And this... Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. All right. So notice here, um, as we have read at the beginning, that the word grace of God comes up often. Actually, the word grace of God in chapters 8 and 9 comes up a total of 10 times and a total of 5 times in just the first 9 verses that we're covering this morning. So here, grace of God. Notice how... If you take it out, you could easily replace it with a word like money. I'll give you an example. We want you to know, brothers, about the money that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. The basic meaning of the sentence remains, 
But the deeper meaning is that, is it possible that the grace of God has been given, is that the Macedonians, who have barely nothing, realize that what they have is not theirs, but it's the grace of God. What they have, their possessions, are not theirs, but they're the grace of God. Then we continue in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy in their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Notice the contrast, right? Sometimes we read scripture and we just read it fast and we just don't notice. Have you experienced this? Extreme poverty, but you're abundantly joyful. It seems like it's two polar opposite feelings because there's affliction as well, right? And when we take the word extreme poverty, um, the English word, again, according to the Koine Greek word for extreme poverty, is, what, is where we derive the word batisphere. So a batisphere is this like submersible spherical thing that goes uh, in the 30s that was used to go down to the deeps of the sea to probe how deep it was. This is a way to, for us to picture how poor the Macedonians were. Um, and also just something else, just for illustration, so that we can really center our minds on how poor they could have been. The latest data that we have from the World Bank says that 736 million people on this earth right now are living under a dollar ninety US a day. Right? Picture that as we talk about the Macedonians. Picture something like that. Right? That's not even a tenth of the minimum salary for an hour here. Right? So he's speaking to the Corinthians, who were poor as well, but they weren't as poor as the Macedonians. So again, see the abundance and it's overflowing. So it's not just that they have enough to give and they want to give. They want to almost give it all. How is this possible? This is unreal. This is mind-boggling. Paul experienced something similar here. Um, when we read in 2 Corinthians 6, uh, 8-10, um, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Amen. So do we not see again something similar here? What's interesting is I think in verse 5 we get the answer to where this abundance of joy comes from. In verse 5, and this, and this is from our preaching text, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's a secret. That's where it all happens, right? So is it possible that we can say, that when we are seeking God first, Christ first, and wholeheartedly, we are promised to know joy in our lives. This is a big claim I'm making, that treasuring Christ results in joy. Because you might feel like, ah, I don't know, in my lifetime, I haven't seen this experience. Right? It's a big claim. So let's see what Scripture says about this. Uh, Matthew uh, 13, verse 44. Uh, so this is Jesus explaining what the kingdom of God is like. So being in the presence of God, right? You're with God. 
It's like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Everything he had, he said, I count it as loss because I have found Jesus. John 3.29, this is John the Baptist when his disciples were asking him, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? And he was describing who Jesus was. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Psalm 16.11 says, and this is the psalmist, most probably David, I didn't check it before today. Uh, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Notice how we see not only joy, but we see joy complete. And then we say joy, fullness of joy. It's not not what you find in life, in things, in people. The God-sized hole that we have, whether you believe it or not, okay? The God-sized hole that you have inside for affirmation, for your identity, knowing who you are and to be loved, only God can fill that. Only can God can fill that. Amen. Psalm 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. This verse has been potentially misinterpreted at times. But what if the desires of your heart is actually to delight in the Lord? Could that not make sense? That as you are basking in God's presence, you don't want anything else, right? It makes sense with the man who found the treasure in the field, right? But this doesn't really answer a question about how joy and sorrow or affliction can coexist together. So let's, uh, let's look deeper into that, right? There are many passages that cover suffering, and, and, and that's another topic in itself. But as it relates to joy, I think there's a very interesting uh, passage in 2 Corinthians itself. Second uh, Corinthians 12, which was quoted a bit earlier. Okay, So Paul, like anyone else, we, th- we think Paul knows everything, right? But Paul is there, and he's pleading with the Lord three times. He says, Lord, take this away from me. He had a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what the thorn was, but it was some form of affliction, of suffering. Okay, And he asked the Lord three times. So he didn't know why this was happening. And he asked. This is what Jesus answers. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Right? And what's even more interesting, really, when I read it, I was blown away. Of course, I've read this passage many times. But this is what he responds. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Isn't this interesting? That not only in his weakness, he is trying to glorify God, but he's glad, he's joyful in in this to know that through his suffering, he could some way glorify God. Isn't that interesting? So is it possible then, as we wrap up this first section, that when we treasure Christ and desire to glorify his name in our lives, first, joy abounds, especially when it's hard. 
Um, I have stories myself, of course, um, but I don't see myself being the best suited to speak on a topic of suffering and joy abounding nonetheless. Um, so Trilla Newbell uh, is an author and guest contributor for DesiringGod.org, and she has a beautiful article that she wrote, and I'll, I'll read a, a few parts of it, okay? So listen, uh, stay with me. I have walked this earth a short 34 years, but in that time I have experienced a wide range of various trials. As a young child, my parents struggled financially, resulting in the occasional electricity being shut off and and visits to a relative's home. During my freshman year of college, I was the victim of sexual assault. A few months later, my father passed away from his battle with cancer. As a young adult, I have experienced four miscarriages, general health issues, and recently, the sudden loss of my oldest sister. And yes, I am joyful, but not without sorrow. I'll skip down to the end of the article. It says, and I rejoice. I can rejoice in suffering because I know I have a living hope. I know that my hope will bring me to an eternal glory. I will one day rise and be with Christ forever. I can rejoice in suffering today because I know that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope, and hope does not put me to shame because God's love has been poured into my heart through the Holy Spirit who was given to me. Romans 5, 3-5. So though I have experienced various trials, my hope is in Christ I rejoice during these trials in my living hope, knowing that nothing, no great trial, no pain or sorrow, and no one shall separate me from the love of God. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, disease, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long, we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, no In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Romans 8.35-39 So, this is the conclusion. This is the answer I'm going to... You know, I'm testing with you guys. Um, The answer to section one, and again, our question was, how do affliction and sorrow coexist with joy? This is what scripture tells us. We can say something like this. As we treasure Christ first, knowing that his grace is sufficient for us, nothing else is sufficient for us, we glorify him in our lives by finding our joy in him alone, especially when it's hard. All right? Now let's dive into section two. The the next two sections will be shorter if uh, any of you are getting hungry. Um, So, genuine love-filled generosity. Okay? The question at hand here is, is your love genuine? How do you know that? All right? Paul has an answer, and it's God speaking through Paul, so let's listen. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace 
But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Go back to verse 6. Uh, I won't invest much time in these two verses, but isn't it interesting? He's saying that he urged Titus as he has started, so he should complete. So something was started, something needs to be complete. What is that all about? So in 1 Corinthians 16, so the letter right before that we have in our Bibles, in chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, Paul asked already the Corinthians if they would participate you know, generously to this cause of helping the believers in Judea, especially in Jerusalem, who were poverty-stricken. But we get it again, right? The Macedonians and the Corinthians are poor as well. Um, but if he says to complete, means there wasn't a lot of follow-through. Uh, the progress was pretty slow. Actually, as Pastor Kent Hughes in his New Testament uh, commentary called Preach the Word, he puts it, the collection had been thwarted by the Corinthians falling out of Paul. So they had a bad relationship. There was that rebellion, right? Remember that severe letter? So, how do we know? How do we know that our love is genuine? Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So is it possible here, um, as I kind of indicated in the title of this sermon, that generosity is the overflow of everything we've seen from verses 1 to 7, right? It culminates here, right? He says, I've said all of this, but I say this not as a command. So he referred to everything from verse 1 to 7, that your love would be genuine. But again, this is interesting, right? Because we can easily fall into thinking that by being more generous, we're earning our salvation. And that's is really not the point I'm trying to make. I'll clarify that more. So, and so, so there's an interesting formula that I see here, and I'm, I'm helped a lot by Pastor John Piper in his uh, video series called Look at the Book, um, and, and I'll show you where I got this from, okay? So the grace of God, remember the grace of God in the first verse, leads to joy in God, and joy in God overflows into generosity and this shows that your love is genuine. Alright? Where did I get this? This is verses 1 and 2 and verses 8. The grace of God, right here, right? We said that that was potentially, like, they knew that everything they had, anything they had was only the grace of God and that was given. An abundance of joy results from that and from the abundance of joy, what we see an overflowing wealth of generosity in here where he talks about how do you prove this? Love. It's interesting, right? Um, So before I just get into Zacchaeus' story, uh, I find this is an interesting illustration of how this is possible. So Zacchaeus, as you might know, the, the man of little stature who went on a tree and was very earnest to, to see Jesus, finally gets a chance to host him. It's a privilege. He, he's hosting Jesus at home. And 
Jesus didn't ask anything. There's no record of Jesus saying this or that. There's no question asked. But it comes out of Zacchaeus' mouth as he is in Jesus' presence and we see that he's joyful. This is what he says. Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And in the response to Jesus, when he hears this, he says, today salvation has come into this house. Interesting, right? The relationship with giving and generosity and that being a trademark of the Christian. But I want to clarify one thing. Again, as I said earlier, it's not your way to God's presence. It's not as you give more, you earn more of God's love. That is not what this passage is saying. It's not what Scripture is saying. In the same way that in James 2.16, we know that faith without deeds is dead, but we know that it's not by your deeds that you get saved. Right? So doesn't it make sense that as you are treasuring Christ, it's only normal to expect generosity? In the same way that as you know and treasure Christ, it's only normal that a generous spirit, a fruit of the spirit, is rising in you, right? So I just wanted to clarify that. Okay? And again, grace of God, it's the joy in God, joy of God, overflows in generosity, results in love. And this is one external attribute. And there are many others. I'll give you an example. We see in John 14, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Right? It's the same thing. It's not as you are very rabbinical and very religious and you keep every commandment that you're in God's love. Because you can't. Right? But it is supposed to be an overflow of your relationship with Christ. Does it make sense when you hear a brother or sister say, I love the Lord, but their lives, it's a different story. But of course... The standard of perfection is what we often place on ourselves. But God has been gracious to us, and this is why it's interesting to finish with the third section. So to to end here, gospel-compelled generosity. So this is Jesus now. We're going to concentrate on Jesus. Pay attention with me, I pray. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, For your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So we've touched a lot on joy, on generosity, and love. Let's start with where it all starts. Because none of this is possible if you've not experienced and know what the grace of God is. Okay? So how does the grace of God compel us to give? Okay? This is the answer. Right? Seems very simple. It's the cross. All, all happened at the cross. That's why we do communion. We always need to remember what Jesus has done for us. We easily forget. This is where it all starts. Okay? There's a, this, this is the gospel. Okay? There's a darkness within us, whether we want to believe it or not. Okay? And this thing is called sin. Right? And Paul talks about it in such a way, in Romans 7, 18, he says, I know that nothing good in me dwells in me, that is my flesh, 
For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. We want to be good, but something in us is rebellious. Ephesians 2, 1 puts it this way. Without Jesus, all right, this is a big claim. It might put people in a very uncomfortable space, but it's the word of God. We, are, we were dead in our trespasses. Okay? That is the state of the human when he's not being made new by the blood and death and resurrection of Christ. We're dead in our trespasses. Okay? Yes, God is love. That's amazing. And I, and I do praise him for that. But I do want to emphasize something else too. God is just... The, the darkest things that we've done, and we won't share that to everyone, the darkest things that we see exposed to light in the news, every day, spend some time on, on CNN and you'll see it. This world is fading. Darkness is around. We're trying to patch the problem. We have an army of young social justice warriors We won't make it. The only one who can is Jesus. All right? this, this is the human problem. And Jesus is the solution. He was in such anguish before going to the cross that he sweat blood. Yes, he was fully man, but he was fully God as well. And the fully man part, it revealed itself there. He was scared. On the cross, it's not like he didn't feel it because he's God incarnate. He felt it. He suffered. By his wounds, we are healed. He was pierced for our transgressions. That's why Jesus had to die. That's why he had to die. So we can't, knew, we can't know what the good news is if we don't know what the bad news is. But praise Jesus, hallelujah, that he died on the cross and was resurrected three days later so that we can have relationship with God. Right? And, and the more we have of God, the more of that fullness of joy that we're talking about in Psalm 16. There is fullness of joy in the presence of God and pleasures forevermore at the right hand. Don't, don't, don't mind the pleasures. This life, you can't even think of what's ahead of you in the presence of God. So this is why, because, I believe this is because of this, that Paul realized this, that he says in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Okay? He, if he could get out of this world, he would have. But God had a purpose for him to stay. Alright? Um, so, last word of caution, um, because obviously, like I said, um, the topic of money and giving is uh, a little bit delicate, but... Um, what I want to focus on, I want to give two words of caution to those who feel a little bit indifferent from the call to treasure Christ first. Like, oh, that's good. That sounds good. You, you look very zealous. That's good for you. I'll mind my own business. I'll just go to church and do the regular thing. This is what 
scripture says. Jeremiah 2.13 For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They're not making Jesus their treasure. And this is the last one. Luke 12, 16 to 21. So Jesus was telling of a parable of a rich man who had so much possessions, um, so he didn't know what to do with it, so he built a bigger barn to have them. And then he says, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said, Fool, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself, is not rich towards God. Right? Remember how Jesus makes us rich? He makes us rich spiritually and forevermore. Right? This is not wealth when you have more things. And I, and I, I pray that you would treasure Christ. I really do. It seems like something so superfluous and and like, I'll never make it there. Seek Him. Make space for Him. Cry out to Him. He'll come. He promises to do so. Verse 33 in Luke 12 says, Sell your possessions, and this is Jesus talking, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens, in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay. So church, are you, are you pursuing God first? It's a real question. You can give me the easy answer. I'll be gullible. I'll, I'll believe it. But God knows. God knows what takes more of your attention during the week, where your heart really is. So again, as Paul said, this is not a command. You know, in verse 8, to prove that your love is genuine, this is up to you and God. Right? I'm just giving words of caution, and I pray that you treasure Him, because there is joy in treasuring Him. There is joy in being in His presence. All right? So generosity is the overflow of treasuring Christ. Right. So there's a video I wanted to show, um, but I don't think it works, so we'll maybe skip it. Uh, I'll just resume it. I'm not really looking to give you practical suggestions about giving. Again, uh, not very experienced with money. Uh, <laughs> but as a, um, as a believer and, and having heard um, many pastors um, preach with zeal and earnestness and urgency about this, I just wanted to make it known one thing, okay? So, you know, I could talk about famine, I could talk about the persecuted church, but I want to focus on something that I feel like we, um, we don't touch upon a lot, that we don't realize the extent of the tragedy that's taking place right now, okay? There are over 3 billion people that in their lifetime are not expected to hear at all the name of Jesus in their lifetime. Never. Because there's no Christian neighbor. There's no one going to those places. 
ethno-linguist people groups, people that share a culture and a language together, right? So you can think of the Catalonians in Barcelona. They have a different language, but they're in Spain. So it's not by, like, geographical place, but it's really the culture and the language they share. We have over 17,000 of those groups. And something like 7,000 of them have under 1% of exposure to a believer. So, so in this room, there wouldn't even be one believer to tell me who Jesus is. And right now, again, according to the video I was going to show, he does a much better job than me. Um, only 2% of the salary of Christians in North America goes to charitable Christian causes. Out of those 2%, out of that 2%, only 7% goes to cross-cultural workers, right? So we often focus on Europe and then missions to, like, North America to like another church in like the U.S. Only 7% goes to cross-cultural workers and something like one-hundredth of that goes to workers who are going to places where Jesus has never been proclaimed. Something's off, in my opinion. And I would like to plead with you to, to go and learn more about this, about un- unreached people groups have not heard about Jesus and we can do something. We definitely can. All right. So that is my one advice, encouragement. Uh, before I pray, I'll just uh, read uh, this one uh, advice that uh, Paul gives in the next chapter. Verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided it in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. All right. Find your joy in Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Holy Father, we, uh, we thank you that you've gifted to us an undeserving people, your Son, on the cross and resurrected for us, and that you invite us into relationship with you, O oh God. We can have a relationship with the God of the universe, the God who's created us, the God who knows every flaw, every strength that we have, every secret. And you love us so much. You love the world so much that you sent your only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. So Lord, I pray uh, for those for whom it's this, this idea of having a relationship with God and treasuring Him first is new. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit works in their hearts, Lord, Lord right now. God, and God, for those of us that have experienced in some ways a season of drought spiritually, I pray that You would awaken us to what's going on in the world and awaken us in our relationship to you. God, you are so good. Your love is better than life. We want to delight ourselves in you, God. God, thank you for loving us, for adopting us, for sanctifying us, for saving us. In your mighty name we pray. Amen. 
so this is your benediction for today. It comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verse 16 onwards. So we do not lose heart, though our outer selves is west- wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. God bless you. Have a great week.